This morning early, I took a walk. It's a good time to get out and pray and talk things over before the Lord. And I met a man on the trail who was walking his dog, and he got out of his car, and I was just striking up a conversation with him. I said, hey, how do you like your car? And he goes, oh, I like it all right, but it just doesn't have any power. He said, I pull a boat, and when I try to go up the mountains, I can't pull the thing because the car bogs down. There's no power. In life, we all want power to make it through to the very end, to chart the course, but not only to chart the course, but to finish it and to finish it well. And so we need the Spirit of God to do that, the power of the Holy Spirit. You might look at Romans chapter 7 as a 1962 Volkswagen Beetle struggling, going up the Rocky Mountain Pass, starts going down, struggle, struggle. And then you might look at the very last verse of chapter 7 where there's a glimmer of hope at the end of Paul's struggle. I thank God that I see something else beyond my struggle. You might look at that as sort of, what, a 1975 super beetle. Souped up a little bit more, a little more power, but still not not like chapter 8. You might look at that as the new turbocharged New Beetle, 1999. They came out with a new one. It, that thing cooks. You can get up any kind of mountain with that thing. It's a whole new Beetle, the new and improved Volkswagen. And so chapter 8 is this turbocharged chapter where the Holy Spirit is mentioned 19 times in the chapter alone, whereas he's been only mentioned four times in the whole book up to this point. Power. Power to conquer the struggle. I love how chapter 8 begins. We covered it last time, so we won't belabor it, but there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that sort of sets the pace for the rest of the, the writings in this chapter according to the Holy Spirit. A man was with his friend at the foot of Niagara Falls, and he pointed up to the falls, and, you know, they're massive. They're breathtaking. And he said, that, my friend, is the greatest untapped, unused power in the universe, the Niagara Falls. And his friend, who was a mature believer, said, oh, no, no, you're wrong. The Holy Spirit of God is the greatest unused source of power in the world. When we think of the power of the Holy Spirit, we, we must begin to think in these terms, in terms of the struggle. The struggle in life, the struggle with the flesh, the flesh wars against the Spirit, this great battle that we all face as believers. The battle in which Paul cried out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And now comes the power in the struggle to overcome. When I was a boy, maybe you had this experience, maybe you didn't, but when I was a kid, I had uh, neighbor kids who, you know, we, we, we'd pick fights with them, or they'd pick fights with us, and I would usually lip off and get myself into trouble, and I would find myself with some bully 
arched over me, ready to pound my face to the ground. On a couple of occasions at school, when I was in trouble like that, threatened, I saw above the bully or beyond the bully, my brother. And just when I thought, I'm toast, it's all over, here it comes, I saw my brother's face. Now, my brother Bob, I'm six foot five, and people think I'm tall. He was six foot eight, imposing. And I loved it when he would just stand around people who threatened me. He didn't even have to say anything. Hey, come over. This is my big brother. In the struggle, I had a definite conqueror, a definite advocate. And that's what this chapter is like. In the midst of this struggle, the flesh is so powerful, sometimes we think, can I ever conquer it? Looming comes in the Holy Spirit. Life in the Holy Spirit. Now, we are dealing with an issue of becoming holy when we've talked on this the last few weeks. It's an issue, really, that isn't spoken of much from pulpits, becoming holy. Usually sermons are filled with how to be happy. And so Christians, or people at least, think that um, the great cosmic design of God for the world is to make everyone happy. He owes it to you to make you happy. No, he wants to make you holy. And guess what? When you're holy, you'll be happy. You'll have the right kind of joy. When you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and not my own well-being, the byproduct is happiness, joy, peace. It's the fruit of the Spirit that we talked about Sunday. In becoming holy, more like Christ, being shaped into his image, we're learning a very important lesson. That first of all, holiness does not come by a crisis point. It's not an instantaneous time subsequent to salvation where we're faced with this crisis and we get a second blessing and then from that point on we're sanctified, perfected. Now, I'm not saying I don't believe in the second blessing. I'm just saying I don't stop there. I believe in the second, the third, the fourth. I think I'm on the 834th by now. There are many blessings. But becoming holy, sanctification, is, is not a crisis situation. Neither is becoming holy passive. Uh, some believers on the other end of the spectrum would say, well, you just let go and you let God. You apply no effort at all. You don't have to really do anything at all. And they mix up justification with sanctification. Now, I hope I'm not using words that you haven't heard. If you've been on Romans, you already know well what those words mean. But in becoming holy, in becoming sanctified, it's not just a passive resignation to God. It is a cooperation. He, by His grace, works in us. We, by His grace, cooperate, apply ourselves, obey. And through this process, the old flesh progressively should be dying. We should be killing those things. Mortify, said Paul, put to death the deeds of the flesh. You're not a debtor to the flesh, to the old nature. And a brand new dynamic by the Spirit comes in play for that to happen. Now, 
Sometimes I am asked a very important question. Are you spirit-filled? And that does mean different things to different people. There's connotations that, well, we could spend the rest of the night talking about them. We won't. When they say, are you spirit-filled? They don't always mean implicit in the question, is it a life governed by the characteristics, the graces, and the fruit of the Spirit? They sometimes and often mean one thing. Do you speak in tongues? And for some, it's such a consuming question that they forget all about their tongue. And they think that speaking in tongues is the greatest thing that could happen while with their own tongue they're destroying other people in the body of Christ via gossip. And so, Paul said, though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, and I have not love, I am Zippo. That's a paraphrase. I am nothing. I'm a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong. So, the power of the Holy Spirit in the struggle of the flesh. Okay, we've been dealing with that. Now, we got down in our chapter to about verse 25, but, but I just wanted to kind of back up a couple verses and then move on for this reason. There are three groans that are mentioned in this chapter. Three groans. There's the groan of creation. There's the groan of the believer for heaven, for the future glory. Then there is the groan of the Holy Spirit, which is in verse 26. Paul said creation groans because it's been under the curse since Adam, since the fall. All of creation now, as beautiful as our world is, what a beautiful morning today. Just a gorgeous day, and yet with all of its beauty, creation is under a curse. It's waiting for the day when God will restore it back to its original. Then believers groan, said Paul, verse 22. We know that, well, that's the creation. We know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. When God created the earth, the heavens, all that is on the earth, all the things in the sky, etc. God said it's good, and it was good. Then the fall came. Death entered the picture. Death spread to all men, the Bible says. And put in place, among other things, was this thing called the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, which says everything is degenerating, is, is tending toward chaos rather than order. That's why evolution has a real problem with just that law alone. Because while it says everything is spiraling upward, it's fighting an intact law of entropy which says, no, no, things left to itself deteriorate. They don't build up. So corruption was written about by Paul. Deterioration. Creation is groaning. It's like, come on, Lord, restore. And he will in the millennial kingdom. We mentioned a little bit of that last week. And then if you look down to verse 23, the believers groan. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We look to the future when there will be a resurrection, when we won't grow old and ache, will be suited for God's eternal kingdom. 
And until that time, we groan, waiting for this, the redemption of our body. Now, it does mention in verse 23 the first fruits. That's an Old Testament concept where fruit was gathered in the very first pickings of the harvest, and the first fruits indicated there's a harvest. So if we've got the first fruits of the Spirit now, it indicates that there will be a future harvest later on. Speaking of the redemption of our body. C.S. Lewis said that if I find within myself a desire which no experience on this earth can satisfy, then the only logical conclusion I must infer is that I was made for another world. That's where the groan comes in. We're not satisfied. All of the great experiences of this life, there, have been, there are many great experiences. Great to be alive. Great to be married. What a great experience. Having children, awesome experience. But all of the experiences of this life, something else is pulling us on. It's this groan. And when we're in glory, well, I'll tell you what, there's, there's no comparison. You know, Paul the Apostle said that uh, the sufferings that we face aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. You'll be perfected. You'll look a whole lot better. I'll look a whole lot better. Now think of all the time and the money we spend trying to make ourselves look better. And does it work? I mean, in the long run, it's, it's a temporary fix, but... You know, we're deteriorating. No matter what we do, the law of entropy is at work. In comparison, there is no comparison. And so we wait for the redemption of our body. Now, verse 26, the Holy Spirit groans. Notice it begins with the word likewise. Creation, believers, all grown, likewise, the Holy Spirit. However, for a different reason, a different kind of groan. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Holy Spirit helps us. Now, do you remember some of the last words of Jesus to the twelve as they were gathered together with him in that upper room. He mentioned that he was going, but he also said, I will pray the Father, and he will send you another helper who will abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. The word he used was parakletos, one who is called alongside to help you, also translated comforter, strengthener, helper. There's a number of translations. And when I read those promises, I get excited because you know what? I need all the help I can get. Romans chapter 7 proved that. There's this battle going on. We need help. You cannot pull off victory in this battle by just saying, I'm going to be strong. I promise myself I will not sin today. You just did. We need something much greater. We have the Holy Spirit. He is active in the life of the believer. He's not just sitting around. He's there to help you. Now here it mentions in verse 26, the Spirit helps. 
That's a rare word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. It means to carry part of a load, to carry a burden, to help someone who's, who's bending over because of a burden. Someone else comes alongside to prop that person up and ease the burden, the pain, the weight. One translation, the Berkeley translation of the New Testament, translates this. The Spirit joins in to help us. It's a great picture of somebody struggling under a burden, but the Holy Spirit's power offsets our weakness. That's the idea. The power of the Spirit is there to offset our weakness. That's the help. Now, the particular kind of help that he's mentioning is the help when we pray. We'll get to that in a minute, but I want to draw your attention to something else in this verse. He helps our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us. Notice the Spirit himself, not itself. Why do I bring that up? Because there are some folks who have a problem with the personality of the Holy Spirit. And they think of the Holy Spirit as some cosmic force, some it. It's a he, not an it. The Holy Spirit himself. The problem, or, or the reason for the problem, I should say, is because some of the descriptions of the Holy Spirit in the Bible could lead a person to think that the Holy Spirit is merely a force. For instance, he's described as the wind the very word pneuma, spirit, breath, the holy breath, is one translation, literal translation. And Jesus talked about the wind blowing where it wishes. And you can hear the sound of it, but you can't see it. So is everyone born of the Spirit. The Spirit came at Pentecost like a mighty rushing wind. Or when the Holy Spirit came like a dove, a bird. And so people get confused and go, well, it's probably an it, not a him. No. These are simply descriptions, not of his essence, not of his person, but of his work. Just like Jesus Christ is called the bread of life. You don't picture him a loaf of bread. He said, I am the door. That doesn't mean he's a swinging door on hinges. There are many descriptions of the work of Jesus Christ. God the Father in the Old Testament talked about uh, protecting his people under the shelter of his wings, under the shadow of his wings. Don't picture God having flapping wings in heaven. These are simply anthropomorphisms or language of God in human terms. Because we're humans, because we have a weakness in understanding infinity, since we're finite, we can't crawl beyond that box, we need descriptors so that we can get a handle on the work of God. And so the Holy Spirit has given those descriptions of his work rather than his person. But that is an important thing that you believe. He is the person, the third person of the Trinity, triune God. That doesn't mean there's three separate gods. That doesn't mean there's even three pieces of God. There are three unique, distinct personalities, all being God, all in the scripture called God. Now about A.D. 300, and the school of ministry will be able to confirm this since they're scholars at this point. They've been all through church history. About 300 A.D., Arius was a guy who said the Holy Spirit is simply the essence of the Father. And he was known as a heretic because the council of Nicaea that corrected his errors said, no, he's not the essence of the Father or it is not the essence of the Father. He is the person, 
God. So the Spirit himself, he's given personality, and in the scripture, divine personality as well. Now, I believe that this is where the charismatic movement has gone a little bit astray. In talking about the Holy Spirit in such terms as you need more of it, yield yourself to it, it being the power rather than the person of the Holy Spirit. This is more than just semantics, folks. So often we pray, oh God, give me more of your spirit. How about, Holy Spirit, take more of me. You see, it would be dangerous, it'd be fatal, if God were to answer your prayer and give you more of that incredible power of the Holy Spirit to be used at your whim and your discretion. It's safer, it's better, it's biblical. When you yield yourself to this infinite loving person, the Holy Spirit, and he inhabits you, your thoughts, and he controls you, not you control him. R.A. Torrey wrote one of the finest books on the Holy Spirit. Here's a paragraph. The Holy Spirit, he said, is not a blind, impersonal influence or power that comes into our lives to illuminate, sanctify, and empower them. No, he is immeasurably more than that. He is a holy person who comes to dwell within our hearts. One who sees clearly every act we perform, every word we speak, every thought we entertain, even the most fleeting fancy that is allowed to pass through our minds. And if there's anything in act or word or deed that is impure, unholy, unkind, selfish, mean, petty, or untrue, this infinitely holy one is deeply grieved by it. Now this is how he sums it up. I think you'll agree with this. I know of no thought that will help one more than this to lead a holy life and to walk softly in the presence of the Holy One. He's a divine person who sees, knows every thought, every motivation, every action. Searching me. As David prayed, search me, O God. Know my thoughts. Now, one area of weakness, this is where we, we need help, is prayer. Notice it says, For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The greatest privilege given to man is that you can talk to God. Here you are, one of billions of people walking on this round dirt clod, spinning through space, and the one who created not only you, but every planet in our solar system, our galaxy, and there are billions of others, gives you the right, God gives you the right to talk to him, to communicate, and God promises to respond. God will answer prayer. Now, he might say no, but it's an answer, isn't it? You can communicate with him. What a great privilege, the greatest privilege in communication. And probably... One of the greatest mysteries is that we don't use it like we should. I, I'm, I've got to believe that the angels who get to witness everything that goes on here must sometimes look and just go, what's up with that? What the Father has bestowed upon them, 
what privilege they have. In fact, the Bible says we're going to judge angels. I don't know that the angels are that excited about that prospect. I think they'll come on, you know, these guys? This incredible privilege. And we don't always take advantage of it. You know, it's possible for me, through prayer, to go anywhere. Even if I can't get on an airplane and travel to India, I can go to India in prayer. I can do work. I could spend a half an hour talking about the missionaries there and the work and the revival and the 34 churches that have started since our crusade, and I can mention them by name. I can, and, and spiritual work is being accomplished as God responds to that. Then I can leave India and I can go over to China and I can go down to South America and go visit Carlos in Spain. And, you know, it's, I'm not, this is an astral projection or anything like that, but true connection with the Father for these areas. But I have a problem, one among many. I don't always know the will of the Father. Now, a lot of people suppose that well, you're the pastor. You're, you're always supposed to know the will of God. I find that most of the time, when it comes to specific areas, I don't know the will of God. I, I think I have a general grasp on the Scripture, but so much I find the will of God after the fact, not before the fact. And especially when it comes to prayer. Would Pastor, would you pray for the will of God for this situation in my life? Well, the only problem is I don't know what the will of God is. It's a weakness I have. Now, God knows what His will is. I don't. There might be a revelation in the Word as I apply a principle toward your situation, but I don't always, it's a weakness. I don't always know. And it's a waste of time for me to pray something that is directly opposed to the will of God. He's not going to do something that's against his will. A prayer isn't some cosmic force that I can wield to get whatever I want at my whim and fancy, and I claim it in Jesus' name, and it's going to happen. That's ridiculous. There is a will of the Father, and the purpose of prayer is not to get my will done in heaven, but to get His will done on earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the purpose of prayer is to get the will of God done. So here I am, and I may be praying for something fervently with tears and fasting, and God will say, uh-uh, 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 you missed it. For instance, you might come to me and say, Pray for me, I'm going through a trial. Pray that I get delivered. And here I am praying that God would deliver you from this horrible experience. Perhaps I'm totally unaware that there's an area of your flesh that is threatening to dominate you, and God has allowed the trial to come, the pressure to come, so that you'd be forced to deal with that area. So here I am, oh God, deliver them. And if God delivered you, it might be the very worst thing since the work of God wasn't able to be finished in your life in that area. So here I am, praying directly contrary to the will of God. It's a problem. It's a weakness. I think of Peter. Remember when Jesus told his disciples, you know, after they come up with this great revelation, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter said, you know, he, he got that question right on his exam. But he got the next part wrong. Because he said, Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered up to the priest. They're going to beat me. They're going to kill me. But I'll rise again the third day. He put the whole plan of the creation, the redemption, into a nutshell perspective. And Peter says, 
Far be it from you, Lord. That shall never happen. Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You're not thinking like God, but like man. This little prayer that Peter made to Jesus was directly opposed to the will of God who sent his son to die on the cross. And Peter wanted to protect him. And even in the garden, pulls out a sword. Come on. And he got the guy's ear because he missed. God wanted to get his head. So I have a problem. What's the solution? The Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. What are these groanings? What are these groanings? I have a difficulty. I have a problem. The solution is, since I don't always know how to pray, I don't know the will of God all the time. When I pray, what happens? The Holy Spirit happens with groanings that cannot be uttered. Intercession is made. Question is, what do these groanings mean exactly? Let me give you two interpretations, both of which are plausible. The first being the most common interpretation. This is often, usually taken to mean groanings of the Holy Spirit. That is, he is doing the groaning, inarticulate sounds, inarticulate groans. I pray for something. I don't always know what to pray for. He completely understands the mind of the Father and searches all things. And so there's this inner Trinitarian communication between the Spirit and the Father. In fact, look at verse 27. He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now I'm going to cross-reference that with 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'll read it to you. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So when I pray, the Holy Spirit searches my heart, my motivation, checks the will of the Father, in a sense, scoping it out, searches the heart and the mind of God, and makes up for my lack of knowing it. And so I pray, and then there's at the same time this groan or this intercession from the Spirit to the Father, filling in the gaps and perhaps even reinterpreting it. Because he knows the will of God. So here you are, you're praying for that cute gal, and you say, oh Lord, please, please, if I ever wanted anything, just this is it. Uh, I want to marry her. She's the one, Lord, and just make her my wife. And the Holy Spirit's going, Father, don't listen to him. He has no clue. This is not your perfect will. You and I both know what it is, and that's not her. In fact, there's this gal that he hasn't even met yet. Just We know that you'll arrange it to be so. Inarticulate groans. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Paul prayed how many times did it be removed? Three times. Finally, what did God say? No, my grace is sufficient for you. When you're weak, you trust my strength. Answer is no. And so I might pray for your healing. And the Holy Spirit might be saying to the Father, but he needs endurance more than healing right now. Tribulation worketh patience. And you know, I have prayed for people to be healed, and I've seen God answer my prayer. But I also got to let you know, just in case you're going, okay, here's the, he's the one that we want to pray then, right? Well, after the service, he'll, 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 God will answer him. I prayed for people for healing, and they've died. God said, no, I have a better healing. 
I have a better healing. They'll be with me forever outside of any physical pain. A new body will be given to them. They'll be in my presence, which is the goal of every believer anyway. There's another spin on this. It could be not the Spirit's groanings, but our groanings. That the Spirit makes intercession through our inarticulated groans. The New English Bible translates this translates this verse this way. But through our inarticulate groans, the Holy Spirit is pleading. He could be, not stating this categorically, definitively, but as a possibility, that he is referring to what he refers to in 1 Corinthians as part of the prayer language given to believers. That part of the communication to God, praying in the Spirit, is not just praying in an unknown tongue, but praying through these groans since I don't always understand how to pray. In 1 Corinthians 14, concerning the gift of tongues, Paul says, No one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. Now, I was doing a little research on this and looking up some of the Greek scholars this week, and I came across a Nazarene, a very conservative New Testament Greek scholar. His name is Ralph Earle, and I was kind of amazed with his background, what he said about this verse. He said, intercessory prayer reaches its depths when it passes beyond the realm of words in our minds and becomes a series of groans. Spirit-filled Christians are familiar with this agony of the soul in which the Holy Spirit is praying in them. Some of you have experienced the depths where words can't sum up how you feel some great distress, some thing has happened, and just the groan expresses the depth of your heart. Words can't. I see the prayer language, the gift of tongues, the New Testament style, not a perverted style, but the New Testament style, a prayer language, as the ability to communicate with God, bypassing my intellect, because you may know certain words in English, but there are other experiences that you have that words just can't express. So bypassing my intellect and a direct connection with the Father through this gift. What is language? Essentially, language is a pact, right? It's a, it's a, it's a covenant we make, whereby certain sounds that I say or that you say are understood to mean certain things. And so you and I have a pact. We call it English. In other parts of the world, they have a pact called another language. And so you hear them talking, and to you it sounds like, but they, they track. And so if I were to say to you tonight, you might go, oh, he's speaking in tongues. Don't, know, don't understand what it is, but if you were speaking Malayalam, if you were from southern India, you'd say, oh, I know exactly what that means. You're saying, blessed be the Lord, or praise the Lord. It's a pact they understand. Now, if I say the word low to you, you probably think of, yeah, the opposite of high is low. But if you were in Israel and I said the word low to you, you kind of look at me strange because I just said no. Same word, two different meanings, two different pacts. We could come up with a pact tonight. We could have a secret code. Just a couple of us. I could say, okay, when there's people around and we want to communicate, We'll say a few code words. And I'll say, Uzza, Wazza, Jazza, Wazza. 
And you respond by saying, surface Murphys, Calyrex Flex. Nobody will pick up on what we're saying. But, but let's make the agreement now, the pact, that when I say as a was a jazz a waza, or when you say as a was a jazz a waza, to me, that means let's go out and have pie after the Bible study. That's what it'll mean. So you'll come up to me and go, as a was a jazz a waza. And I'll say, surface Murphys, Calyrex Flex means we'll go, but you buy. And so we have this funny little conversation. No one is privy, but you and I are. We know what it is. We've made a pact. Certain sounds we agree together mean certain things. And so in a prayer language, though it doesn't make any sense to the person, as Paul said, no one understands him, howbeit in the spirit he speaks mysteries, or even a groan. And somebody look at you like, you're goofy. You're groaning. Ooh. But to God, it's more than a groan. He reads the heart. The Spirit is making intercession directly to the heart of the Father, and it's powerful. Now, there's a problem with that. The problem with that is it does bypass our intellect. We're not understanding what we're saying. That's why we don't like to even entertain the idea of that gift existing. Because we're insulted if we can't process it and understand exactly what it is. But God does. And I confess, I've been in experiences where I can say, Lord, I love you, Lord, I praise you, and I'm thinking of words, and I'm trying to stretch my vocabulary and come up with the right words, and I think, words can't express how I feel, what I'm trying to say. Lord, you know. So it could be speaking here about the inarticulate groans that we use, and the Holy Spirit pleads through them. John Bunyan said, it's better to have a heart without words than to have words without a heart when you pray. Verse 28. We're not getting very far, are we? Ah, but this is the richest part of the book. Does it matter? And we know, uh, if we finish this verse tonight, we'll close in verse 28. If we finish this verse tonight, we'll be doing good. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Isn't that one of your favorite scriptures? Have you committed that to memory? I bet most all of you have. If you haven't, go do it tonight. You know why? You'll pull it out a lot. <laughs> You'll need that thing in your back pocket a lot of times. What's that verse? Oh, yeah. This has comforted more Christians throughout the centuries than probably any other New Testament text. The sovereignty of God. God working out even the worst for my good. R.A. Torrey, I just mentioned him a minute ago, called this verse a soft pillow for a tired heart. Isn't that a good description? And I have rested my head on this verse many, many a time. When I've had a tired heart, I've retreated to this verse, and I can think of many episodes in my life where I've had to come to this verse and say, I'm going to park right here, Lord. I'm going to camp right here on this verse. This is the Grand Canyon of Scripture. It's got a, a panorama so vast it covers absolutely everything in life. It'll give you peace if you believe this. Back in 1873, a lawyer lived in Chicago by the name of Horatio Spafford. He got up enough money to send his wife and his children on a luxury liner from New York Harbor to France. En route, there was a collision. The luxury liner collided with another boat, and the boat sank very, very quickly. 
Spafford's wife tried desperately to save her children, was unable to. They all died. They were all drowned. The wire came to Horatio Spafford's residence in Chicago that his family had been obliterated at sea. He was a Christian man, by the way. Thought that God had opened the door for this event to happen, and he sent them on their way. They went. Wire came back. All killed. He paced through his study that night, consumed with grief, dealing with the situation of loss. Never before had he felt the depth of pain and sorrow that he felt at that moment. And yet, he wrote and he spoke about the peace that came over his soul, his heart, when he believed that God was in control, that God had a plan, God had a purpose. I don't understand it, but I cling to you. I cling to this verse. And inspired him to write a song. When peace, peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Next time you sing that song, you might want to remember how it was birthed out of great pain of loss. But by someone who believed that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, there are certain gems that are worth lifting up and just spinning around and looking at each facet, then putting it back and getting the whole concept, the whole context. I want you to notice this phrase by phrase. First of all, the first part, and we know. That's the certainty of God's care, and we know. It didn't say, and we think, and we hope, and we suppose, sort of. But 32 times, this is one of characteristics of Paul's writings, 32 times in Paul's writings, he uses the, the certain definite form, we know. The Christian life is not a philosophy. It is a certainty. There are certain things we ought to know. We've been talking about that in the last few weeks in Romans. That we're, we're to know certain things. We're to reckon certain things. We're to yield ourselves based on that and then obey. There's victory when we know. And so here there are certain things that we know rather than suppose. We know what? We know God cares. We know that by experience. Not only by scripture, but by experience. Has God taken care of you? You're here tonight, right? You're not dead. You didn't starve to death. You might have thought you would this week, but you didn't. Yeah, but I didn't get all I wanted. So what? He took care of you. God's worked it out. You're here. You're here tonight singing of God's praise, God's goodness to you. Now, there are certain things we don't know. But I would never trade in those things for what I do know. There's a lot of unanswered mysteries. Oh, you know, what is going to happen with certain people who've never heard? I, I don't know. But there's enough stuff I do know. And what I do know, I'd never trade in. And one thing I do know, and that is God loves you and God cares for you. I remember a story of, uh, that I read of a clergyman on a train going across the Hudson River. And uh, there was an atheist across from this clergyman. The clergyman had a Bible sitting next to him, and he was reading it. Lunch came, and it was the New England cod. had a lot of bones in it. And the preacher was eating it and putting the bones aside. And uh, so the atheist decided to strike up a conversation. He said, you a preacher? I said, yes. See, you got that book. Do you believe it? Yeah, I believe it. You believe all of it? 
Yes, I believe all of it. You believe creation story? Yeah, I believe it. Jonah? He started naming all the controversial texts. And then the atheist said, what do you do with all those problem passages in the Bible that you can't give answers to? What do you do with them all? Huh? The preacher smiled and said, I, I do with those the same that I do with these bones of the fish. I eat the fish, and I leave the bones for some fool to choke on. <laughs> the guy was startled because he was obviously the fool choking on them. Well, this man was nourished by the truth of God, certain things that he knew that he wouldn't trade in for those things that he didn't know. So the certainty of God's care, and we know, next phrase, that all things, now that's the comprehensive nature of God's care. We know that all things work together. Isn't that hard to believe? Honestly. Wouldn't it be easier if it said, and we know that some things work together for good to those who love God? It's okay, I'll underline that one. I can believe that one. Or even if it said most things, but there's no limit. We know that all things work together. No qualifications at all to this. This is not saying that God will keep you from every harm, but it is saying that God will take everything, even the bad stuff, and use it as fiber. All things, good, bad, and different, and weave it together for your good. That's what it means. If you don't believe this, if you're the kind of a person that doesn't believe that all things work together for good, I bet we can tell. I bet if we spent a long enough time with you, we could tell, because you'd probably be a bitter person. Enough stuff has happened in your life, didn't go the way you wanted to, and you're mad. And the root problem is you have failed to believe that God works all things together for the good of those who love God. Yet you have that one thing. You go, how could this thing be one of those things that works together for good? This is horrible. Yeah, but just wait. Watch as God weaves it in the fiber of your life. Now, if you have a, a new American Standard Bible tonight, it renders it a little differently. It gives the emphasis on God. It puts it this way. God causes all things to work for good. That's important. The emphasis in the original text is that God is the source of this cause, that God approves everything that goes into your life. It's not a series of chances or fate, blind, impersonal things, forces of nature that happen, but there's the personal care of God. God has a plan for you. Learn to trust God's plan for you. Another one of your favorite verses, I bet, is Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Another sweeping, comprehensive truth about God's care. So learn to submit to his plan, knowing, not supposing, knowing all things. Notice the next phrase. All things do what? They work together. This is the cohesiveness of God's care. The idea is synergism. What that is, is God makes sure that there is a working together of all of the elements because the end result of the working together of the elements is greater than the sum of those elements. Example, in chemistry. 
There are certain things that alone are harmful. They're bad. They're poisonous. Sodium and chlorine are two poisons. But you put them together, and they work together. And sodium chloride's table salt. It's a beautiful, nourishing element. It adds spice to life. It adds flavor to food. And so things that would be considered as poisonous alone, when they work together, can be very, very beneficial. So God takes the good elements of life, the bad elements of life, the neutral elements of life, the indifferent elements of life, and has that wonderful way of weaving them all together into the fabric called your life, making sure that it's for your highest good. It's a supernatural process. It's not a natural process. This is a promise to the believer, those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The unbeliever looks at life apart from this and sees haphazardness. It's just whatever happens, happens. It's a bad mistake. And so they try everything they can to control. They have no one to trust. They know nothing of the sovereignty of God. It's only the sovereignty of myself temporarily at this moment. I'm the master of my own fate, the captain of my own ship. What a great lens to view life through, isn't it? Next phrase, the culmination of God's care. For those, or for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. God is your highest good in mind. Can I give you another verse to memorize? A lot of you already have. If you haven't, you might want to commit Jeremiah 29.11 to memory. Jeremiah 29.11 where God says to the captives in Babylon who are probably wondering, is this one of those good things? Out here for 70 years, apart from our homeland, what's up? God says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace or good, and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's how God thinks of you tonight. The culmination of all of these elements woven together is for your good to those who love God. Even when your plans flop, you know what that's like? Isn't it horrible? You make plans and God doesn't follow through. And they were such good plans. I, I sat God down and I gave him good counsel. He should have listened to me. I had, I'm a smart person. I'm intellectual. I had this thing all wired. And he had his chance. I have had conversations with architects who tell me that sometimes couples go, come into their office or his office and, and uh, say, we want you to design a house for us. And he always steps back and goes, oh, really? You want me to design the house? But he comes to find out that the couple wants him to put on paper their already designed house. They just want somebody who has the skill to draw their plans. They don't want somebody to design it. And sometimes we come with our plans of life before God and say, okay, God, draw these out. Stop to it. Come on, I claim it right now in Jesus' name. But when your plans flop, still working together for good for you, even your suffering and your pain. Notice it doesn't say for the ease of those who love God. All things work together for the prosperity and comfort of those who love God, but for the good. And God knows what that is. Joseph, was he unjustly treated by his brothers? Yeah, he was. You might look at his life and say, what a harsh twist of fate for poor young Joseph as a teenager to be treated so hostily by his brothers. Okay, he was a little green behind the ears, naive, but still. 
That was horrible. But had he not become a prisoner, he wouldn't have had access to the Pharaoh as a slave to interpret the dreams as he was there in prison and then eventually before the Pharaoh. He wouldn't have had the opportunity to come up with his God-given plan having access with the Pharaoh to save the world when there was a famine. And he knew that. In fact, at the end of his life, rather than becoming bitter, he became better. And at the end of the book of Genesis, when his brothers are before Joseph, and they think, Joseph's going to find out who we are. He's going to kill us. Cause here we are, you know, we need bread. We're starving to death. And this is Joseph, our brother. And if he finds out who we are, oh, we're, and of course he knew who they were. And when he revealed to them that he knew who they were, he looked at them in their baby blues and said, As for you, and they probably went, you know, like Dorothy before the Wizard of Oz, As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To save many people as it is this day alive. That's the perspective of this verse. They may mean it for evil, but the point is God means it for good. And God will weave it together for your good. Can I give you another example since we're closing with this verse? When the early church was being persecuted in Jerusalem, and it says they were scattered abroad all of Judea and Samaria, that means that they, by persecution, as bad as that is, had to leave families, had to leave their home church, had to leave fellowship, lost their jobs. That was horrible. That was horrible. But God was working together. Because God, Jesus told them, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Why leave Jerusalem? This is a thriving, great church. This is growing. We have the Word of God taught. It's where the Holy Spirit was introduced. Jerusalem church, we're not going to leave. And they, they didn't leave. They stayed there until the persecution. And then when they were persecuted, it says, they were scattered and they went abroad in Judea and Samaria preaching the word. That's awesome. It was the persecution that, the, oh yeah, we have a job, don't we? We have a task. And the gospel got out and eventually came to Rome. And because it hit the center of the empire of Rome, we have it today. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If you took a bar of steel worth $5 and made horseshoes out of it, it'd be worth 10 bucks. But by making horseshoes out of it, you have to pound it. You have to fire it. And if the steel could talk, I bet it would say, Stop it! Ouch! It hurts! You're bending me! You're putting me... Oh, I'm melting! But it's more valuable when you take a simple $5 bar of steel and you make horseshoes. It's worth 10 bucks, double the value. Okay, take it a step further. Take that $5 bar of steel and make tiny little needles, sewing needles, out of all of that steel. It'll now be worth $15,000. Mark up all the profit, there's a hunk of steel there. If you take the same bar of steel and make scalpel blades for scalpels for the operating room, it will eventually, because you can mark it up in the medical community, be worth $32,000, is what I read. If you take the same $5 bar of steel and make tiny little springs for pens, 
it'll be worth $250,000. A simple $5 bar of steel worth that much. How could it be so valuable? Beating, fire, manipulation, what we would call the fiery trials of life. Don't you know that's why James says, count it all joy when you face manifold trials, knowing that the trials of your faith will produce. Let patience have her perfect work, said James, that you may be complete and entire, lacking nothing. When is the last time you paused to thank God for the pain? Rather than, I haven't got time for the pain. <laughs> Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? That God is able to take everything in life and weave it together in the fabric called your life so that your highest good is, is in His mind? Because the thoughts that He thinks toward you are peace, good, a future.